0: Join us now for another Compliant with Alliant podcast, bringing you insights on the ever-changing world of benefits compliance and what you need to know. Here's your host.
1: My name is Christine Blanco. I'm the Director of Employee Benefits Compliance here at Alliant, and we like to bring you these podcasts to stay up not only on what's happening within the ACA repeal and replace landscape but also really shifting to some practical guidance to talk through and help with some of the things that um, become sticky in your plan administration. And today I have with me Karen Murray, who is an attorney who also works in our EB compliance department. Karen?
0: Hello, everyone. Thanks for being with us.
1: And we are going to shift a little bit and talk today about HSAs and high deductible health plans. Regardless of what happens, you know, with the ACA, any any iteration of the future contains HSAs. You know, both all the repeal and replace plans favor HSAs, and we see groups moving to a high deductible HSA health plan model as a cost containment measure. And so as we've seen that, we've seen a number of issues kind of come up um, throughout, you know, the course of our clients implementing an HDHP HSA plan design. And so we wanted to talk through those a little bit uh, and what we see. And there's some basic foundational information about HSAs that, you know, Karen, um, why don't we talk through that, that that really having that foundational understanding will help sort of frame up the questions as they come up.
0: Yeah, sure thing. Thanks. Um, I I see this actually happen all the time where um, clients uh, will refer to sort of an HSA plan, but I think there is sometimes a lack of understanding about what exactly that means. And when you have an HSA plan, um, that really has two components to it. It has an underlying high deductible health plan, um, and those plans are um, basically required to have certain minimum deductibles under, um, under the code, and then... Accompanying that is an individually owned um, bank account, an HSA account. So those are owned by the account holder, the individual, the employee, um, and those are usually um, governed under state banking law or trust law. So you have two different components here. You've got the group health plan, the high deductible health plan itself. Um, again, that's going to be subject to various health care reform provisions, et cetera, and, and other, um, you know, the usual benefits compliance issues you're used to seeing, COBRA and HIPAA and so forth. And then you're going to have the HSA, not a group health plan, just an individually owned bank account. So I think it's important to kind of go into um, you know, go into the process of implementing an HDHP, sort of understanding those fundamental differences. Right, they're completely different animals. So, um, and and once you kind of have that framework, I think it's a it's a lot easier to sort of understand the guidance that you get as you implement the HDHP. It so, is.
1: And Karen, don't you think that um, it, it's sort of an on a non-compliance topic? And uh, we should note that um, I think, and I don't know in your experience, Karen, I think it's really important for a successful implementation for the employer and you know broker partners to communicate with employees be the ones right right like responsible for here's what we're doing now here's what the hsa right the employer tell them you know yep. what it is what this animal is and i find that the sooner the employer is able to do that when they're shifting from like a standard ppo model or hmo model to the hdhp HSA, say the sooner they yep. start doing that right uh the better
0: huh Absolutely. Agreed. And then another question I see kind of along those same lines is, Um, A lot of times employers will make a contribution to their employees' HSA accounts, which is great, Um, but I think sometimes there's um, a lack of clarity about, you know, how does that work when we have someone who might leave mid-year or be hired Mm mid-year, what's the employer's obligation with respect to making contributions to certain employees, and usually that's just dictated by whatever you've told them you're going to do, so (laughs) not, um, you know, it's it's different than, again, than a health plan. where you're pretty much limited to what uh, statutory and regulatory guidance says you can do. but with an HSA account, um, you know the employer's usually just going to be bound by whatever they have said they're going to do with respect to making contributions.
1: right. And I, I mean, there are some rules obviously around how you make employer contributions, but Karen's right that you know the um, ultimately, it's you know there's some level of sort of contractual, Um, issues that come up with the HSA. And it's important to note too, because when we're looking at sort of what we talk about, like account-based plans, right? Like our Health FSA, our HRA, our HSAs, I know Karen and I both, there's um, naturally and understandably some confusion out there. Once you make a contribution to an HSA as an employer, generally you're not getting that back. It's very different from The HRA, it's different from the FSA in terms of, um, you know, there's no forfeitures. The individual takes the HSA funds and goes on their merry way. Right when they when they yeah. term employment, so um, right, it's important. That's a great to point. That.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up actually, because I think in in a lot of people's minds, an HSA and FSA and an HRA they're all kind of account based plans. They're all the same thing. They're really not because an FSA is a group health plan, an HRA is a group health plan, and an uh, an HSA isn't.
1: Yeah, so um, let's talk a little individual. bit about um, some of the strings attached to having an HSA. Uh, because, you know, the whole underlying notion is, right, that there's some consumer engagement with an HSA so that there's, you know, uh, visibility and transparency and what some things cost so that individuals are consuming healthcare in a way that's, um, you know, engaged and mindful. And so the HSA requirements is, you, you know, you really can't have essentially any first dollar coverage other than basically preventive care. Right, Karen? Right. So... You know, so what are what are some examples of some uh, coverages or healthcare that would disqualify someone from being eligible to make an HSA contribution?
0: Right. Um, well, first of all, I I think that's just kind of a great um, starting point. Preventive care is permitted coverage. Um there's a few other things that are permitted under um, you know under a health plan that could be first dollar coverage, like you know limited scope coverage, dental vision, things like that um, are permitted. But you know, by and large, you have to be very, very cautious to not affect your um, HSA eligibility. Um, one of the most common ways this happens sort of inadvertently is, um, an individual who's enrolled in a high deductible plan will sort of think that they're HSA eligible they don't have any other medical plan coverage um, they're not covered covered on their spouse's medical plan but maybe their spouse has a general purpose FSA and typically um, general purpose FSA uh, coverage will reimburse not only that employee not not only the enrolled employees um, medical expenses but also family members medical expenses so That spouse's FSA coverage is, is in fact, if it's general purpose coverage, it's disqualifying for um, the spouse that's covered under a high deductible plan. So no HSA eligibility there. That's a common one. Right. And, you know, Um, um,
1: before we go on, I think, too, the question probably comes up is, well, how am I going to know that as the employer sponsoring the HDHP with an HSA? And that goes back to employee communication. There's fairly limited, when you're not sponsoring the disqualifying coverage yourself, there's fairly limited obligation, but the way, you know, obviously if you have employees who find out after the fact that they had disqualifying coverage are going to be fairly crabby about that. And so um, you want, that goes back to the employee communication and educating them because you're not going to be able to know if Joe's spouse has a health, a general purpose health FSA. So you empower Joe with that information,
0: you know, don't you think Karen? absolutely yeah. it's it's great to have that communicated up front a lot of times it's not and it's one of those things that people just don't know to watch for so ag- agreed if you can um, get in front of it um, that's ideal i mean you should should definitely try to because it's um, you know if you end up having that disqualifying coverage in place and you've been contributing to an hsa um, you're actually not hsa eligible and you know, at that point, you have a couple of choices. You either have to take that money back out of that account before you file your tax return for that year, or you end up paying a cumulative six um, percent excise tax on it. Is it um,
1: six or is it ten? I don't know. I'd have to look. <laughs> I mean, you're probably right. Sorry, I think it's six. It. Okay, six. Yeah. Um, um, and it definitely, all to say there's definitely an excise tax on that if you have contributed to an HSA while not eligible and not fixed that. And there are an, a, a, actually a kind of a decent amount of landmines out there on HSA incompatibility is sometimes the word that we use. So um, sometimes, you know, if you have an on-site clinic could impact, you know, your, your HSA eligibility of of your eligible population. Um, what I see happen a lot is groups moving quickly towards um, you know, cost containment uh, without a, a ton of thought about the demographic. So if you're moving to an HGHP, HSA, and you have a decent amount of employees who, have, who, are, who are Medicare eligible or TRICARE eligible... Those eligibility for both of those government programs makes renders you HSA-incompatible. And there's a lot of sort of issues that come up around that. So um, it's important to, and what I see a lot of times, and Karen, I don't know in your experience if this has been the case, that there has to be some where the employer is making a contribution to the employee's HSAs for those employees who are not eligible by virtue of Medicare eligibility or TRICARE eligibility. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They have to somehow... You know, find a way to make them whole via an HRA or or something else. Um, if they are also enrolled in the high deductible health plan, which you'll find sometimes,
0: right? That's actually pretty common to have um, an employer make a contribution to an FSA account, for example, for their their employees who aren't HSA eligible. For right. example, they're Medicare entitled. It, it's a little bit of an odd combination to have an FSA and an HDHP because you know. Um, the FSAs use it or lose it feature, you know, encourages use of the healthcare coverage, whereas an HDHP, mm-hmm. you know, sort of has the opposite um, incentive to sort of, you know, mm-hmm. be mindful about when you're using care and so forth, so on yeah. and so forth. So they're not necessarily. Um, an ideal match from a design standpoint, but it 's used all the time for employers who have a population of their right. uh, you know their employees who aren 't hsa eligible for yeah. whatever and you
1: have to you also have to make sure that you 're administering that and you do design eligibility around that general purpose health fSA so that your hdhp hsa folks don 't accidentally enroll and you also generally what I find is that given the health fsa's limits on um, contributions to remain an accepted benefit, you're not going to be, which is basically the employer can't, shouldn't contribute more than $500 a year, um, isn't going to make them whole, so to speak. So, um, so there's, you know, that's why it becomes a little bit of a sticky wicket for lack of a better term. I also see too, in that situation, I get a lot of questions around, you know, my spouse, I'm enrolled in family coverage on the high deductible health plan. And so we we're probably getting ahead of ourselves, Karen, because we haven't talked about um, the contributions limits to an HSA. Um, do you want to run through that real quickly?
0: Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, basically, um, the HSA or the HSA contribution limit is going to be tied to your HDHP election. So if you have um, family coverage, um, then you contribute the family limit to your um, to your HSA account, and family coverage would be self plus one and you know and the one can be anyone, an employee or a spouse, a dependent, etc. Anything more than just self only coverage is family coverage. So you can contribute the, um, the family limit. For 2017 um, I believe that is um, $6,750. Nice. If you have self only coverage on your HDHP then your um, your HSA limit is 3,400. So again, your how much you contribute to your H HSA account depends on your HDHP election, family or self-only. And then those maximum annual contribution limits are going to be prorated. Mostly there are some special rules here, but uh, prorated based on how many months of the year you're HSA eligible and what tier of coverage you have during those months. Um, and and that's kind of an easier thing to just walk through by example but you know i don't want to it's kind of hard to do that (laughs) via podcast um but it's pretty simple once you sort of go through it to just um you know make those adjustments and then there are some special rules for mid-year hdhp enrollees too
1: right and now it's probably a good time to inject a um an aca side note or a repeal and replace side note where um the proposed new um American Healthcare Act um, and they are we are recording this on the day that they're potentially going to vote on that increases HSA limits fairly significantly And so um, to carry on Karen's point um, I think it's important to understand that if you are enrolled in family coverage and you can contribute the family limit, which is the higher dollar limit right? even if you have a spouse who's Medicare eligible, you can still contribute, the family limit, as long as the employee is not otherwise um, enrolled in incompatible coverage, and that gets kind of confusing. Um, another thing about sort of HSAs and reimbursements is, let's say you become, you know, covered under some sort of incompatible coverage for whatever reason, whether it is, you know, you become Medicare eligible, or you, be, you know, your spouse and has a great plan that you just can't, you know, you can't resist. You can still reimburse out of your HSA, you know, right, Karen? I mean, you can still continue to reimburse. Right. You're just not eligible to make continued contributions or receive continued contributions from the employer.
0: Exactly. That's a lot of people kind of refer to that as the shoebox rule, <laughs> just out of the you know the idea that it's fine to just sort of stash your um, your receipts. And verification of whatever expenses you've incurred, you can you can re- continue to reimburse those expenses. You know, even a year later, two years later, if you still have, you know, unreimbursed costs and you still have money in your HSA account, um, you can con- continue to use that. You just can't continue to make contributions or have them made on your behalf after you have that disqualifying coverage. Yep,
1: exactly. So I'm trying um, to think. It's, there's a lot to cover with HSAs, but I think what we want to do here. Is just kind of highlight a number of issues that you may run into when you're considering implementing a high deductible health plan, or, or it's fairly new to you, Um, because there's a number of things to consider. Are there any other high? I want to. Are we missing, Karen? Are we missing any high points? I mean, Uh,
0: no. I think you you hit the big ones, and I'm glad that you hit the Medicare question too, about you know what if I you know if I have other coverage. Um, can I still have high-deductible health plan coverage? And that's a really common question. you know, anyone can have, you know, for the most part, anyone can have high-deductible health plan coverage in combination with whatever other coverage you want. You might not be HSA eligible, though. Um, and I think that's a confusing point for people. Um, you know, you can have Medicare and high-deductible health plan coverage. You just can't be HSA eligible.
1: Oh, do we want to you talk know? real quickly about um, about – you know the first sort of implementation phase if you have a general purpose health FSA and you want to implement the an HSA HDHP how do you deal with the grace periods of an FSA and the carryover provisions, that can get really complicated. And so we may, maybe we don't mm-hmm. need to dive down on this right now, but just understand there are fairly prescribed ways to handle that. And you'll mm-hmm. want to talk to whoever it is, you know, your benefits consultants, to work you through that, but just get ahead of that, don't you think?
0: Absolutely. we And I think we talk about that, too, in some of the materials that we have. Um, that are available for uh, for our clients to kind of use as a reference right, piece right. because it can be a real minefield um, sometimes if you're changing from um, an FSA to an H you know uh, to an HDHP with an HSA.
1: That's right. We um, do. We, so we have an know. FAQ and we have sort of a a white paper on transitioning and sort of all the various things you need to consider. And I would highly recommend sitting down with those um, before you before you consider moving forward. So I think that's probably brings us. Brings us to the end of what we can do on HSAs, and we are happy to address any questions um, that come through as a result, and we wish you luck.
0: Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Have a good day. You've been listening to Compliant with Alliant, your source for the latest insights and information in employee benefits compliance. For more information, visit us online at AlliantBenefits.com.